like that adaptation. You were there. That's true. We were in him when he was crucified. If I remember right, there was an apostle named Paul who said, I was crucified with Christ. And he was speaking, of course, for all of us. We were buried with him by incorporation by the spirit into Christ, raised with him, lifted up with him in ascension, seated with him in heavenly places. So from that position, we're able to have a clear view of the ark. And as we head into the word today, in Romans chapter 2, if you want to turn there, Romans 2, to start with, we'll be moving into 3 and then Romans 15, calling today's message a cascade from the river of life. Every message should be that, a cascade from the water of life, the river of life that comes from the throne of God and the Lamb. As we were singing and worship, I was considering what happened in the book of Joshua, the very first chapters, how the priests stood with the Ark of the Covenant, representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And they stood in the midst of the Jordan and the Jordan River split open. And from the view of Israel that said they had a clear view of the ark. And that's what I, my prayer is today and always that God will provide us a clear view of the ark, a horizon from which to view our savior, Christ Jesus in his ascended glory, having been crucified, buried, raised, ascended and enthroned. Now, In Romans, we have what I think is a critical, if not indispensable, tool of interpretation. And that is the knowledge that in Romans, especially 118 through 320, we have what is known as an ad hominem. Ad hominem, of course, is a Latin phrase. And it means that one is speaking or writing an argument against a specific teacher's counterposition rather than a representation of Paul's position. And that's what we have to iron out, rightly dividing the word of truth almost literally here, rightly dividing it, accurately handling the word of God here. As Second Timothy 2.15 says to the preacher, the teacher of the word, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or accurately handling the word of God. The way that I view this is by a scissors analogy in which an upper blade may be what we say today. Romans has to be considered in the first few chapters at least an ad hominem where much of it is Paul presenting a counter position rather than his own position. And then he counters that counter position. And by that, we get a clear view of the glory of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by that, we get to look into what James one twenty five calls the perfect law of liberty, liberty, which I would translate as the fulfilled Torah of freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is the freedom to be transformed without travail 
into the image of the Lord, which is manifested in the word. That's my intent then with all of this interpretation of Romans is once again, an ad hominem is an argument against a specific teacher's counter position rather than a representation of Paul's position. And so we want to look again at Romans chapter two, starting at verse 17, where we can see Paul actually engaged with this other teacher who has presented a gospel of justification by adherence to the works of the law. And that was not only this teacher's position, but the position of many teachers in a not representing true Judaism, but representing a splinter group of Judaism, which says that we are saved and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they said that salvation came through circumcision by the males, of course, and then by a comprehensive following of the Torah. And so you're not really sure where you're going to land in the day of the judgment, the eschaton, as it's called, as to whether all of your good works can be stacked up higher than those of your violations. And so what a mess. No eschatological assurance there. No boasting in the hope of the glory of God. And so Paul is taking this guy apart. He calls him out in Romans chapter 2. And I want you to see this very clearly. Because we're teaching Romans. And for me, when I teach a book of the Bible, I take it extremely seriously. And I have a great responsibility to handle it properly and accurately. So I don't do any passages unless I've engaged pretty fully with the Greek text. And I think that's extremely important. And also the overarching narrative and the immediate context as well as the context of all of Paul's epistles. Paul is calling this teacher out and he begins to emerge from the shadows, this teacher Paul isn't shadow boxing here. He's making connections with this teacher's gospel. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, he's speaking not to the Jews, but to a specific Jewish teacher. And he said, and rely on the Torah and boast of your relation to God or boast in God, which means your relation to God. And you, and all of these are quotes of this teacher. You rely on Torah, Paul says to this guy. You call yourself a Jew, you rely on Torah. You boast of your relation to God. And you know his will, verse 18. You know his will. And approve of things that really matter. You have great discernment. Being instructed from Torah, that's the law. Unfortunately, the Greek doesn't quite grab this namas. Namas in the Greek doesn't quite grab the idea that what's being referred to is Torah, the law, specifically the Mosaic law. So he goes on to say in verse 19, these are every one of these are like a counterpunch. And if you are convinced that you, now the personal nominative singular pronoun means He is calling out a specific person here. Second person, singular pronoun, you. So he's saying, you, teacher, sort of like Pink Floyd. 
you, teacher, leave those kids alone. Never mind. I, see, that's, I came from the rock era. I'm sorry. It's a, anyways, pretty much is what he's saying here. Hey, teacher, leave these kids alone. Verse 19, if you're convinced that you are a guide to the blind, this is what this person alleges, a light in the darkness. The darkness was always considered to be the place where the Gentiles, the pagans lived, the outer darkness. And then he, well, this really verifies Pink Floyd here. See, we have to take this a little slow, so I'll re- try to remind you. You remember Floyd the Barber on Andy of Mayberry? Okay, so there is people still here that are as old as I am. Or My sister Becky gave me a T-shirt one time, and it had Floyd the Barber all in pink, big picture of Floyd's face, and underneath it said Pink Floyd. I yeah. thought that was cute. It's weird, though, because you go into stores. I was going into stores in Florida or gas station. People start giggling at you, and you go, what? And then, oh, it's this. They get it. And anyways, look what he says next. See, I'm going somewhere with this. You're a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of small children. The Gentiles, the pagans, little children need to be instructed by a teacher of Torah. Oh, they'll throw in Messiah sooner or later, but see, he's sidelined. That's the big thing about this teacher. He sidelines Jesus Christ and he marginalizes the Holy Spirit. He sidelines Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. He sidelines him where Paul's gospel says, I determined to know nothing but Christ and him having been crucified. Which, means, which takes in his incarnation, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the whole Christ event and his enthronement. He's right at the heart and center of Paul's gospel. He's sidelined by this guy's gospel. But almost as importantly, that's the sidelining of Jesus Christ when it comes to salvation. But there's also the sidelining of the Holy Spirit the marginalizing or setting aside of the spirit who's called the spirit of Christ or the spirit of the son whom God sends into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. This same gospel sidelines the Holy Spirit in terms of ethics. So an ethical demand is placed upon people without a recognition that it is not by our power or our strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The spirit is also sidelined by this gospel as we will see so paul says if you're convinced verse 19 that you personal nominative singular pronoun or a guide to the blind a light and darkness a corrector of the foolish a teacher of small children having the embodiment of the truth in the torah this man claims that the full expression of the truth of god is found in Torah. Paul says in Ephesians 4.21, you know the truth as it is fully embodied in Jesus. And when Jesus quoted the Torah, expounded the Torah in his resurrection in Luke 24, he went through the Torah of Moses, went through the Psalms, the prophets, the Nebiim, he went through the writings, the Ketubim, 
He went through the whole gamut of the Old Testament and concluded, all these testify of me. As we'll learn from the big 10-4 of Romans 10-4, Christ is the end of the Torah, which means literally the fulfillment of it. He is the fulfillment of it to those who have faith. So, in this, in these verses, two seventeen to nineteen to twenty, really, the teacher, Paul's nemesis, emerges from the shadows, even to the point that Paul addresses him both as you and as teacher. I think you're beginning to see clearly, Paul is in a dialogue here. He's in a dialectic here. This is what we have, which is called a dialectic of contradictories. Paul isn't confused. He doesn't say in Romans 2, 6 through 10, that if you keep seeking God and doing good, you'll inherit eternal life on the one hand, and then say that you're rescued freely by the faithfulness of Messiah on the other hand. They, he doesn't, he's not confused. He's knocking down the former position. And when we're all done here, my goal is to have a clear view of the gospel of the glory of Christ, a clear view of the ark so that we can truly enter into the land of promise as an assembly. That's my goal. That's my pastoral goal. So again, teacher, you, this makes it even more clear that what's going on here is not Paul's forward presentation of his gospel that starts with a contemplation of the cosmos and then moves on to where you send positive signals to God and then moves on so where you're deserving little by little a hearing of the gospel, then you're deserving through your own personal faith justification. Paul's not doing that here. It's not a forward presentation of his gospel, but an argument against a specific teacher's counterposition a man whom Paul anticipates the arrival of in Rome because he and his cohorts have been just about everywhere else. So Paul is doing a great favor for these people. Here's the terrible irony in the crisis of our own time. The terrible irony of this is that Christians and Christian teachers and evangelists and priests and pastors in our own time, actually adopt the counter position of this teacher as if it's Paul's position. And that's tragic because it's exactly the opposite. That's a terrible irony. And so what I'd say to you today is never fear. Never fear. In a leap year, it's especially important. Never fear. Because there's 366 commands in the scriptures not to fear. And so in a non-leap year, we've got one left over. So never fear. Because where we're headed is that Paul's position will become as clear as a crystal river of the water of life proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. It's going to be unchained, unshackled, clear. And I think we're going to have an even clearer view 
of Jesus Christ in his universally saving importance. One that will be harder and harder to say anything against or resist. This goes along with, of course, an historical crisis. The theological crisis has to be solved or no historical crises will ever be solved. So again, never fear. Paul's position is going to become as clear as crystal river of the water of life. This takes us back to Revelation 22.1. As this epistle continues, especially in Romans 3.21 to 26, where you begin to anticipate the clarity of an unchained gospel, a gospel of entirely divine initiative and divine completion. Paul has already made the thesis statement for this in Romans 1, 2 to 4, about the resurrected Christ, 1, 16 to 17. He then goes into Romans 3, 21 to 26, and then into Romans 5 through 8, where the unchained gospel has its final home. And this is also, if you want it encapsulated in three verses, what Paul's saying in Romans chapters 5 through 8, Encapsulated in three verses, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. Incidentally, that passage, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, should be interpreted, you are all sons of God, courtesy of the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. It's not a justification by faith verse. If you want to believe that, go ahead, but don't use that verse. We are beginning to see that everywhere the faith of Christ, pistis Christu, the faith of Christ, Galatians 2.20, Galatians 2.16, Romans 5.1, justification by faith. We're beginning to see that all these verses must be interpreted Christologically as the faith of Jesus Christ, his faithful obedience to the Father's desire to save mankind by an act of unconditional grace. Jesus Christ obeyed the Father to the point of death, even death by crucifixion. And so we are all the sons of God, which I would argue is the Israel of God, whether Jew or Gentile, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And the spirit is then emphasized for as many of you as have been incorporated by the spirit into Christ have put on Christ. Paul is thinking of two things, the symbolism, not the requirement of ritual baptism, but the symbolism of baptism is that you went down to the river or to the baptismal font or wherever you went to get baptized and you were immersed identifying you with Christ and then raised identified with Christ. But then you went and hopefully changed your clothes. So you were clothed in Christ. And that's what Paul is using a double metaphor of. And then he says it is in Christ that there is you. It's impossible for you to be. He said impossible for you to be Jew or pagan or slave or free or male or female. And that's, what Galatians teaches. But Paul irons it out, rolls it out gloriously in Romans 5 8. 
But in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and then on to 320, Paul is exposing and then demolishing this gospel. Before you see this interpreted this way, this other gospel, this false gospel, is a hard target. You can't spot it. You're looking at the terrain in the battle, and you can't spot the target. What the teacher of the gospel has to do is go in and paint the target, which is to put a bead on it, a laser beam on it, or to paint the target. Then it becomes a soft target. Then you can send your missiles into it and blow it away, according to Paul's strategy. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The stronghold that we're pulling down is another gospel. But beyond that, there is an interpretation of Romans that tries to reconcile Paul with this guy. And so you get a gospel called the justification by faith, hence what's known as the Lutheran model from the Reformation onward. But we've been showing that it's not justification by personal, your individual and personal faith in Jesus Christ, but it is an unconditional deliverance and rescue through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Big difference there. One is grace. The other is you doing your part, God doing his part. It's a contract. The true gospel is a covenant. It's unilateral. God does his part, period. Is ethics important in the gospel? Supremely. Is it importance in the justification by faith model? Not really. Is it important in Paul's gospel? Absolutely. But that ethic is a spirit ethic. It's something that is accomplished when the spirit of God enables, empowers, wills, and does in you. That's all coming forward. So Paul paints the target. You, teacher, the teacher comes out, the specter comes out of the shadows. Now that the target is being painted, that's my job. I paint the target and then let God send his missiles toward it, which is 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. So Paul paints the target and then obliterates it. So Romans 2, 21 then says, then you, teacher, there it is again, you, Teacher, Paul's not talking to himself. Paul's not talking to the Romans. He's talking to the teacher. He's exposing as light does. One of the things light does is it not only manifests the truth, but exposes error. And what Paul's doing here is exposing error. In your light, we see light, said the psalmist to God. In your light, in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, we see the false light of a false gospel. A false dawn. Then you teacher of another, Paul says, don't you teach yourself. The Romans were already aware of certain Jewish charlatans, phonies, fakers, Turner burn preachers that had been to Rome in 19 AD. They were already aware of the famous expose of certain Jewish charlatans, not Jews per se, but certain Jewish teachers had already been there already began their little crusade of bringing these benighted pagans into the fold. And then they ended up robbing the temples of the pagan idols. 
they ended up doing all these things that Paul is saying. He's not accusing this particular teacher of this, but he's saying it seems that we can also point to many events in history where there has been a legalistic turn or burn kind of message like Romans 1, 18 to 32, and the preachers of it are hypocritical. So he says, you teacher of another, you who teach another, don't you teach yourself? I think this is calling this guy out pretty good. Verse 22, you who preach do not steal. Do you steal? The Roman Christians were aware that there had been, again, legalistic preachers. We have them today in the Christian church. who end up robbing the temples, as he says later on. You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And in effect, this gospel is an adulterous gospel. It is showing an infidelity to God in Christ. It's a true infidelity. You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in Torah, do you dishonor God by violating Torah? Here's the kicker here. Paul charges the teacher with relying on Torah and boasting in Torah, meaning boasting in his adherence to it. So he's qualified. Paul then demolishes this boasting as is especially clear in Romans 3.20. Look at that for a moment. Jump ahead. Paul begins to conclude some things. And he echoes Psalm 143.2 in Romans 3.20a, which says literally, for all flesh will not be justified by the works of Torah. Now, some have translated that as no flesh, no human being, humanity at large, whatever you want to say. But it actually says in the Greek text in the Septuagint of Psalm 143.2, all flesh will not be justified, delivered, saved, rescued, whatever you want to put there, by their adherence to the works of Torah. Adding in 20b, something that he takes up in Romans 7. This is a lead-in to interpret Romans 7, where there is a great psychological disturbance going on. When I try to do good, there's evil present with me, and every time I try to do the good, I end up doing the evil. I do what I hate, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's the problem that Paul addresses and solves. But this Romans 3.20b takes up Romans 7. For through the law comes the consciousness of sin. Through the law comes the consciousness of sin. That's the purpose of the law. And so the teacher himself admits that he boasts in Torah. Paul quotes him there. That is, in his adherence to it, his obedience to it, his comprehensive following of the commands of Torah. This again projects forward to Romans 3.27. Jump there for a moment, where the teacher says, and this is the teacher talking, where is boasting then?
And I like Paul's answer. Shut out. I think the shut out here is so emphatic that it's more like a perfect game. 27 up, 27 down. No hitter, shut out, no score. Where is boasting then? When it comes to justification, when it comes to being considered in the right in the final judgment, where is the boasting then? If it's not in Torah, if it's not in doing the works of the law, then where is boasting then? Paul starts off by demolishing the whole idea of boasting when it comes to salvation. He says it's shut out. So he says, if it isn't in Torah, where is it? When it comes to justification or salvation or to what he would call a favorable verdict on the eschatological day of judgment, where is the boasting then? Paul bluntly answers, it's shut out. It's totally excluded. Then, as we've been discovering in our midweek classes, boasting is found somewhere later. It's found in Romans 5, 2. Paul says, I'll show you where boasting is. It's in the Lord, not in you. It's in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not in your personal faith. It's in the faithfulness of another. For by grace you have been saved. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who although he was rich, became poor for us. Where? On the cross. Because he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him. But we will live toward you in the power of God. We preach, we teach toward you in the power of God that lifts you up, that encourages you, that uplifts you, that manifests the power and the strength of God. We are weak in him. That's my pastoral motto. But we too live by the power of God toward you, the congregation, toward one another. So Paul, later on in Romans 5, he says, Therefore, being rescued and delivered by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And then he says, We have assurance and we have access into this grace wherein we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in not assurance, but e-assurance, eschatological assurance. We boast in our hope that we will share the glory of God through glorification. We boast in that because it's a boast in the Lord, not us. Romans 5, 2, and 3. So as we've been seeing in our midweek services, boasting is in the hope of those who are delivered by the faithfulness of Jesus, the hope of sharing the glory of God. This boasting is appropriate also. Paul says not only that, but in 5, 3, we boast in tribulation. We boast in this life's difficulties, some of which are bizarre if you study Paul's life, some of which... We'd never expected to face such adversity in our lives, some of which are normal adversities, some of which are not so normal and have to do with principalities and powers and their desire to keep us enslaved, etc. Paul says we also boast in our tribulation. The reason that we boast in our tribulation 
is because itself is a guarantee that we will partake of the glory of God. We are incorporated into Christ. And that means that we share his victorious history. We share in his story. We share in his downward trajectory, the sending of the Son, divine mission one. His downward trajectory is martyrological. He is sent. He suffers. He's incarnated. He's obedient to the extent of death. He suffers death on the cross. He's buried. This is a downward trajectory that we share with him. Our sufferings in this life are an experiential indicator that we are in and sharing the downward trajectory of Jesus Christ incorporated in him. Paul was very emphatic about this. He said, all day long, I'm led every day to death so that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in me. It's a victorious one because this fact that we in this life share in the downward martyrological trajectory of Jesus Christ is a guarantee that we will also experience concretely, actually, and fully the upward trajectory. And it was noted to me twice this week that downward and upward is a V, which stands for victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our very tribulations in this life are celebrated not because we like to suffer, but because they are an indicator that we are going to participate, and in fact, we already have in an inaugural way, but we are going to participate actually and concretely in a bodily resurrection ascension into a life of the coming age in which there is incorruptibility, immortality, relationship with God and one another that is fruitful and phenomenal and all the rest. So we are guaranteed of that. So where's boasting? It's in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope is from God in Psalm 62, 5. Our hope is in God. If anyone's going to boast, and Paul rests a lot of his epistolary content on this in Jeremiah 9, 23. If anyone is going to boast, says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, his intellect. Let not the rich man boast in his wealth or his holdings. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. But let anyone who's going to boast, boast in this, that he knows me, says Yahweh, who exercise saving action and mercy on the earth. Boast in the Lord. That's where the boasting is. That's where it went. You've been using the Where's Waldo thing. Where's Waldo is a beautiful illustration. If you ever seen that, there's, there's a million guys that look like Waldo in the picture of the million Waldo, people who look like Waldo, but there's only one Waldo, and he's dressed a certain way in this picture. And today there's about 200 Pauls. We're trying to find where's Paul. And we find, when we find Paul, we find an extraordinary, gracious apostle to the Gentiles who proclaims an unconditional, transformational, universal, glorious gospel centered radically in Jesus Christ and his faithfulness and in his being crucified, raised, ascended, and seated in our identification with him. That's where boasting is. 
So this boasting is appropriate in the course of our difficulties because they are a guarantee of our sharing of the glory of God. So we are right to boast in our eschatological assurance because it's guaranteed to us from God. And where's the condition when God said we were foreknown, called, justified, and, and glorified in Romans 8.30? Where is the condition we have to meet there? Where's the condition when Christ died while we were yet still hostile to the very God of love who gave his son, Christ died while we were ungodly in Romans 5, 6, while we were still actively hostile sinners, hamartolon, Christ died. Where's the condition we had to meet there? Can't find it. So if you're looking for the condition as Waldo, you're never going to find Waldo. You're going to find Adlaw, his opposite. Who wears Pittsburgh colors, incidentally, black and gold. As some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That's all right. That's all right. You can be tuned tune into your devices. Be careful not to read a book or anything like that. Now, not that Waldo is a book, but... So we're right to boast in our e-assurance because our present tribulation is a sign. It's an omen, if you want, of our experiential identification with the downward martyrological trajectory of Christ. And it's also a forecast at the same time of our experiential identification with his glorious upward trajectory. We are, all, after all, in Christ. Paul only talks about this word called justification a few times in Romans and Galatians, but you know what he talks about everywhere through the whole span of his epistles? The phrase, en Christo, in Christ. That defines our salvation. It's participatory. It's martyrological. It's eschatological. Because there's a partly realized eschatology here. Even though we anticipate the concrete bodily resurrection we have been raised together with Christ. So there is an inauguration of it. I experienced this, and as anyone else would, in serving the Lord, whether it's the gift of helps or the gift of giving or the gift of preaching or teaching or evangelizing, we experience a little bit of this upward trajectory because it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead by which we speak. I have no public speaking talent whatsoever. Give me an assignment like in high school, do a paper on biology for 30 students, forget about it. I'm skipping school that day. I've got the flu. Even though I feel phenomenal, I'm going to go swimming. But it's the power of God. We are weak in him, identifying with his martyrological downward descent. But we will also live by the power of God. Paul said, therefore, I... I do something strange when it comes to my infirmities and my weaknesses. I boast in them. Because he heard from the risen Jesus, Yahweh himself. My grace is enough for you, Paul. With this thorn in your flesh, with this messenger of Satan. See, all your life you've been wrestling with this guy. I'm going to give you the means to paint the target and take him out. But for now, my grace is enough for you. 
Because my power, you see, only kicks in in weakness. If you were strong and boasting in your strength, if you were wise and boasting in your wisdom, if you were wealthy and boasting in your wealth, my grace has no ignition in you. It's only when you're weak. So I boast in my weaknesses, in persecutions, in infirmities, in adversities. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Where's boasting? There it is. It's it's excluded from the salvation picture. But it's found in our life and our living. So the teacher who appeals to Deuteronomy 10.17, I love this too. The teacher says in Deuteronomy 10.17, he quotes, God shows no favoritism. He's no respecter of persons. God shows no favoritism. And then, but he explains this in the sense that God is a God of retributive justice. And he is going to bring his wrath on Jews. And the way it's translated isn't first the Jew. It's the Jew and then especially the pagan. So God is no respecter of persons. He shows no favoritism. And this is the preacher because he's talking about the God of retributive justice. But Paul turns that whole thing around in Romans 3.30 when he still reasons with this guy. Let's look there for a moment. I think it's worthwhile taking a look at this. I, I think it's important to engage the texts here. Engage them. Get right into the text. And that's the only way I think that we come out with fruitful insights. Paul applies this. No favoritism shown by God, not to retributive judgment for God, for Jews and especially pagans on the judgment of the last day. But Paul, here's a, here it is, Romans 3.27 and following. The teacher says, where is boasting? Paul says, shut out. The teacher says, through what sort of Torah? What sort of, in other words, what sort of authorized teaching do you rely on for that, that boasting is canceled? A Torah of works? Paul says, no way. Through a a Torah of faithfulness. In other words, works are eradicated through a new Torah, which is the law of Messiah's faithfulness. There can be no boasting when it comes to salvation on the part of mankind because we are all saved courtesy through of the faithfulness of another. Now watch what he does here. It's absolutely ingenious. He says, for my fixed position, this is where the gospel starts to shine, and this is where the gospel starts to be the clear view of the ark. Paul says, for my fixed position, as opposed to you, teacher, is that a man is justified, and justified in Paul's language means delivered from sin and death as powers, and from Adamic ontology, which we call the flesh, and from the enslavement by principalities and powers, or demonic powers, into Christ and life. So let me expand it. That My fixed position, Paul says, is that a man is justified through 
or by that I mean delivered from sin and death, from Adamic ontology and from the enslavement by principalities and powers into Christ and into life through a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. It's not a matter of personal faith of the individual versus doing the works of the law. Paul's great contrast is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ Versus the works of the law. So may I shockingly address you today by saying there's no such thing as saving faith in the Bible. No such thing as saving faith. You say, well, there's a couple of places in the Gospels where Paul's, where Jesus said to people, your faith has saved you. It's their faith which he gave to them for healing. Sozo means healing there. There is no such thing as your saving faith. There is such a thing, however rampant in Paul's gospel as the saving faithfulness of Jesus Christ. There's no mediator between God and man, including your personal faith. It's the man, Christ Jesus, the epitome of faithfulness. So my fixed position, Paul says, and here's where it gets clear, is that a man is delivered from sin, death, Adamic ontology, and the enslavement of principalities and powers into Christ and life through a faithfulness apart from Torah observance. Then he says this to 29, is God the God only of the Jews? This guy's got to say, no, well, I've already said he shows no favoritism. And then Paul says, is he also God of the Gentiles? Which again, the, the shocking part of this is the Gentiles should be translated the pagans or to the fundy preacher, the heathen. Is God also a God of the heathen? Mm-hmm. The teacher says yes. It's kind of like I like to look at him as through kind of clenched teeth. Yes, of the Gentiles also. I had to teach that way for eight weeks. Some of you might remember I had my jaw wired and um, for eight weeks. So I taught like this for eight weeks. When they took the wires out, they said, we've never seen anyone that healed. And I said, because I never shut up for eight weeks. I kept... Exercising our jaws. Man, I couldn't wait to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken when that was over. Got the five piece with the corn on the cob and lots of butter. Biscuits, you forget about it. It was the best meal I ever ate. Eight weeks of drinking cheese soup and boost or whatever it was. Whoa, that was terrible. Thank you for indulging me in my foolishness today. But let's continue. Verse 29. Is God the God only of the Jews? Is he also the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also. Paul there says, even as you confess, that means you repeatedly confess this, God is one. Why? Because this guy goes to synagogue, and like all the Jews, he confesses that God is one. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, Lord. Paul says, so even as you must confess as a Jewish teacher, God is one. But then Paul says this. Here's where Paul takes God shows no favoritism. And because he is one, he delivers or justifies, we could say, saves the circumcision. That's Jews from the source of faithfulness. Here's our famous phrase, ek pistios, which again that word is the key. It's found in Romans 1.17. The faithfulness here is the faithfulness of God's righteous one, Jesus Christ, who lives 
after his faithfulness. My righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live, zao, be resurrected because of his faithfulness. The gospel is what I'm not ashamed of because therein the righteous act of God in saving mankind is being revealed from faithfulness, ekpistios, ace piston, to faithfulness. That means Christ's faithfulness goes into the people in Christ and continues. So we live by the faithfulness of Messiah after we are incorporated into him. Paul rarely talks about how we got into Christ. He rarely talks about it, if at all. But he does, from a retrospective standpoint, say, we have been incorporated into Christ. We'll get into that down the road. He delivers the circumcision, that's the name for the Jews, from faithfulness, ekpistios, the faithfulness of Christ. Then he says, and the uncircumcision, that's the pagans, dia pistios, which means through the same faithfulness. So God is no respecter of persons. He judges everybody with his wrath, and he rewards you if you've got some good works, and he condemns you if you've got bad ones, or if the bad ones stack up higher than the other ones, he's not even f- going to favor the Jews over the Gentiles even. Paul says, yeah, you're right about that favoritism, but it goes toward God's unshakable benevolence and a thing we like to call God's unconditional love. God is without favoritism. You know what he does? He justifies or delivers unconditionally the Jews from the source of Christ's faithfulness and the non-Jews through the same faithfulness. That's Messiah's faithfulness to the point of death, followed by burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. That Christ event is what saves. The Christ event is what saves. I've determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That means him having been crucified, and therefore having been crucified, also raised, ascended, seated. Now, one more thing I'm going to put a cap on this today by taking us all the way to Romans 15 where the end of the body of the letter proper ends in 15:13 I'm going to take you from Romans 15:8 to 12 the main body of the letter ends basically at Romans 15:13 when Paul says that he hopes that you enjoy the peace and the joy in the believing. Not in the believing to appropriate salvation, but in the believing that salvation has been appropriated by the faithfulness of Christ. Hope you get that. That's Romans 15, 13. So for the same reason that Paul speaks this way in Romans 3, he can give the following cascade of verses from the crystal river, the water of life that flows from the throne of God and the lamb in his concluding remarks to the main body of the epistle. Look at Romans fifteen eight. Now I, Paul, he's concluding the body of his epistle now, say that Christ, the Messiah, became a servant to the circumcision. That's during his incarnation, the days of his flesh, on behalf of the truthfulness of God to make good on the promises he made to the patriarchs including the promise that he would make Abraham the father of many nations. And verse 
Look at what he says in verse 9. And so that the Gentiles, the pagans, may glorify God for his mercy. Romans 11.32, he has shut up both Jews and Gentiles in disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Here's what Paul says. Look at it again. I say, this is Paul. Hey, Paul. One, two, three, five, 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 five. Paul. Ricky, don't lose that number. Ricky, don't lose that. I mean, I know. None of you lose that number. One, two, three, Trinity, five, 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 times five, 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 seven times grace. Paul called Paul, and Paul said to me, uh, I, Paul, say that Christ the Messiah became a servant of the circumcision on behalf of the truthfulness of God to make good on the promises he made to the patriarchs and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Even as it is written, here comes some lower blade data. Therefore, I, that's the royal Messiah king speaking, will praise you, Father, that's God the Father, in the Gentiles. I, Christ doing the speaking, will praise you, Father, in or among, you could say, the Gentiles. As Paul put it in Colossians 1, 26 and 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the realized hope of glory, Christ in you Gentiles, as well as in the Jews. So, again, therefore I, Messiah, will praise you, God the Father, in the Gentiles and sing psalms to your name. That's 2 Samuel 22.50 and Psalm 18.49. Then in verse 10, the cascade keeps coming from the crystal water of life from the river that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb, in verse 10. And again, it, what? Torah says. Again, it says, what? Torah, the whole Old Testament and summed up, says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Equally with his people. That's Deuteronomy 32.43 from Torah. Again, it says, the Torah Rejoice, you Gentiles, pagans, with his people. In verse 11, and again, boom. Every one of these looks like a punch to me. Boom, and again, boom, and at right cross. Boom, he says. This basically knocks him out. Extol the Lord, all you nations, and praise him, all you peoples. Psalm 117.1. And still again. Paul could go on and on. So could I, but I won't. The root of Jesse, compare with Revelation 22.16, will appear. He who rises, the word is for resurrection. He who is resurrected to rule the nations. In him, the Gentiles, pagans, will hope. That means have confident expectation of their glory, as Romans 5.2 says. There's where boasting is. So note the implicit appeal to unity here and throughout Romans 
and indeed throughout all of Paul's epistles, the appeal to unity. If this gospel is comprehended, the result will be unity in the body of Christ, not divisiveness and division or hostility. There will be a lot of that until this is established, though, so get used to it and just trust in the Lord. So Paul then concludes Romans 3.31. Do we then abolish Torah? That's what the teacher alleged that Paul did. Do we abolish Torah through the faithfulness of Messiah? Paul says, perish the thought. On the contrary, we affirm it. We establish it. We fulfill it. We see Torah in its final fulfillment, which is an attestation or a testimony of Messiah and his faithfulness. We don't do away with Torah. We fulfill it. We see it fulfilled. We affirm Torah which is also a word, a code word for the whole of the Old Testament scriptures as being fulfilled in Messiah Jesus. And we affirm it as the Torah of his faithfulness, also known as the fulfilled Torah of freedom in in James 1.25. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is that freedom. And we thank you, Father, for this opportunity to engage the scriptures of truth For we have just been obedient to what the angel from heaven urged Daniel in Daniel 10.21. Let me show you what is written in the scriptures of truth. We see this, Father, not as a wish fulfillment. We see this message, this glorious gospel, this gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God. We do not see this as something we wish for or hope for because we're afraid of hell. We see this written large through the scriptures everywhere. We see your son high and lifted up. And in seeing him high and lifted up, we are undone as far as trying to glory in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are undone in order to be redone, remastered, Recreated as a new creation in Christ. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything at all. What means it something is a new creation. And if any person is in Christ, there's the new creation. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.